Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. It's good to see you. You know what I like to do on this Sunday? Here we go. He is risen. risen I love to hear it from people who mean it on the Sunday after Easter and not just once a year. Amen? Was that mean? All right. No, it's good to see you guys. It's good to see you back. It's good to be back in Galatians. ask you to pray for me this week, will you? I'm going to leave on Tuesday uh, to go back to Cuba. First time I've been back in four years there. Many of you know I've had a ministry there since the early 2000s. And Cuba, the country, is just one of the most difficult places in the world right now. People people don't even know how bad it is because the media doesn't really cover it. They're literally starving to death. Hundreds of thousands of people are fleeing the island. And the government's letting them for a change, you know, do it without as much of a big deal. Uh, They're going through Central America and up through the uh, Texas border. Some of them are going to Europe. Um, it's, it's just really, really tough. They're starving to death. It's worse than any time since the revolution. And, and so the real, I'm taking 123 pounds of dried food and clothes with me. Um, I mean, I've got it down to the ounce in my suitcases to be able to, to get in there. I, I will wear multiple shirts when I go in so I can leave everything behind. Well, not everything, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> my brain's a weird place, right? Yeah. But no, pray, we've got a lot going on there, and, and some of our, our key team members are really struggling with some big decisions, and I'm only going to be there three days. I'll be back on, on Friday, but uh, pray for that, because it's, it's really, really, really a tough time. Um, I'm so excited about this month in, in Missions Emphasis. How many of you have tried the screen yet? Have you tried it? Oh, come on, you got it more than that, okay? Before you leave, come in early or whatever, go try the screen out. Find out where all we're at. Use your phone. Get get information from it. There's videos. We just added some videos this week. There's so many good things going on. Next Sunday, you don't want to miss David Nelms. Uh, David is one of the world's experts on church planning movements and discipleship movements. Amazing guy. I've known him for 30 years. Uh, took one of my first missions trips with him. He pastored the church I pastored in Florida after I left. He pastored it for 10 years and started the Timothy Initiative while he was there. Just an amazing guy. And he's going to share with you some things, particularly that's going on in India right now. You know, we've invested a lot in India. Our church, by the end of this year, will have spent $200,000 in in India in the last four years. Um, And we're planting churches and training uh, pastors. Um, And and the door's closing. The the noose is tightening. They've got a militant Hindu president there who is absolutely just destroying uh, every chance he can. Anybody that's not Hindu there. And, and so what we see is a window that's closing. So we're planting, 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 training, training, training. And uh, he's got a couple projects he wants us to consider. And I ask him to kind of tell you about those next week. So he's going to be here. You want to hear him. He'll light your fires for missions. And then this thing we're doing on the 30th has just caught fire. And I, I don't want you to like say, oh, I don't know if I want to come back on a Sunday night. No, you got to come back. This is, this is going to be really something. And I didn't really think it was going to be this big until our, our missions team has just done an extraordinary job. But we, we wanted you to meet our missionaries because it's blessed the nations, right? We wanted you to see who we partner with and so that you can feel connected to them. So we said, well, let's, let's invite a couple of them to see if they'll, they'll come for uh, a, a Zoom call that, you know, we can't bring them all here. So let's connect by Zoom call. And I thought, well, you know, I hope to have maybe half a dozen or whatever. So let me send out 12 invitations, hoping, hoping that I can get six people. They all said yes. So I don't know how we're going to do it. They're going to have to talk like me. They're going to have to really be, be fast. But we're going to do that um, with missionaries from all around the world. They're getting up at, in the middle of the night to be able to talk to us. It's going to be so cool. But then we said, well, we want them to meet local missionaries, too. We want them to meet people that are right here in our community so you can partner with them. Uh, just, just this week, uh, my life group went and did something with a, a group uh, called Caterpillar Ministries over in Huntersville. And, and we spent a couple hours working on their, their property and, and, and helping them out. That's what we all ought to be doing all the time. And, and, and I want you to meet these people. So we picked, again, we picked, you know, like eight or ten. We said, let's, let's see if they'll come and put up a table and you can meet them. And we'll put out some food from the nations. We'll call it Taste from Nations. And that'll be simple, right? Oh, no. Oh, no. I think we've got like 20 people coming now. I mean, we got folks from all over. And we got some folks flying in from Texas just to be with us on that Sunday night. And the food, oh, my goodness, don't eat lunch, all right? Because there's going to be food everywhere. We, and a lot of you life groups are getting involved in that. So it's going to be a big thing. You say, well, oh, my kids got to go to school. First of all, your kids, they'll be home by 7 if, if, if you leave on time, which... Otherwise, you'll be here till midnight because I know how you folks are. But, but anyway, you can make that determination. Uh, but we're going to give all the kids a little passport. They can get stamped. And so they can meet the missionaries. 
in person. You don't know what an impact that makes on your kids to be able to, to meet and, and talk to a missionary and, and to communicate with them for a few moments. So this would be good for your family. This is good family discipleship. Really would love for you to come. Next week, five, or not, I'm sorry, two weeks, five o'clock um, uh, on the 30th. And I think so we're going to end with a bang. And here's the big bang I really hope we end up with. And I mentioned it in the video. The above and beyond. So above and beyond is what we give above and beyond our tithes. When you give your regular tithes, we take 10 cents of every dollar. We give it to benevolence, church planting, um, um, national, international, and local missions. Uh, it, you know, we have it all divided up. It's about a quarter million dollars a year. We have it very, very specifically divided up. But then we have these big projects that come, like the opportunity to plant churches in India. We just had this big project in Zimbabwe, and they're like begging us, oh, man, this is taken off. We need more help and, and so forth. And I really want to get involved in that. Sometimes you all bring us opportunities. we got things going on in Myanmar, all of some things. Where do we, how do we fund that? We fund that through above and beyond. So that is like, like for me, I give, well, I'm not going to tell you what I give, but I give extra every month um, just above my tithes and offerings. And it goes directly into that. Uh, last year, I think we had about $65,000 come in. We really ought to be doing 100. I, I really think that's a, that's, that's a good threshold. So I thought, well, let's just set that goal. So everything you give to missions this month through Above and Beyond, online or through your offering or whatever, goes into that fund for the next 12 months. But we're also saying, would you let us know what you'll commit to? Like, like I like to give systematically. I don't even think about it. I, I make my decisions once a year, and I give my tithe, and then I give for all the other things I give for. And then it just comes out, and it just gets sent automatically. Would you consider doing that? It could be $10 a week. It could be $100 a month. It could be you're going to, you know, I, I know I get a bonus, not me, but speaking, you get a bonus at the end of the year or whatever, or you get a bonus, you know, at the end of a stock or whatever. You say, I'll give $10,000 or I'll give $5,000 or I'll give whatever. And, and watch what happens with that. And we try to communicate that to you. So that's another way we give. Um, and, and, you know, none of it stays here, not one dime. It all goes back out. And if, if we don't, Mike Seffern calls me out. Why do we have this money in the bank? Where's it? We, we need to go, you know. And so we've, we're going to put out a whole bunch of it in June and July this year. Um, anything that you give through our, our budget goes out by July 31st. Everything goes. So we want it on the field. So I hope you'll feel good about that. That's really why we're doing this. We want you to feel connected. We are making a difference in the kingdom of God's work around the world. And I don't think we talk about it enough. I'm, I'm so excited about it. So that's why we're doing it this month. I know I've talked about it a lot, but I, I hope you'll catch the excitement. I think it'll be really good for you. Now we're in Galatians. I love this book. There's so many different angles you can take to it. I've, I've taught through it before. Um, and every time I go through, I learn so much more. We made the, our, our Pastor Ben kind of set the, the, the tone for this and set, pitched it and, and so forth. But he said, we want to focus on the gospel. The gospel is the foundation. The gospel is everything. So the theme of it is be pure. Be pure. The gospel is, must be pure. Because there's a lot of people who corrupt the gospel. When something that is essential for life is corrupted, it is a big deal. A big deal. In Michigan, in the last few years, we've seen something that happened. It's been a great tragedy and a source of significant and necessary um, controversy. A few years ago, in fact, it was 2014, <clears throat> the city officials in Flint, Michigan, made a decision. They'd been getting their water for years out of Lake Huron, which is one of the five Great Lakes. And they take it and they send it to their treatment centers and, and, and so forth. And, when, and, and it wasn't a big deal. The water was fine. Everybody's drinking. Nobody's having a problem. They made a decision, for some reason, I don't even really understand what it was about, to shift from Lake Huron to the Flint River. And they started drawing the water out of the Flint River, sending it to this, through the same pipes and the same um, you know, purification centers and so forth. And all of a sudden, a few years later, kids' IQs start dropping. And people are getting sick. And there's some birth defects, some weird stuff going on. So they decided to test the water. And when they tested their water, they found out that it had a high level of lead. Now, back when I was a kid, lead paint was used everywhere. And what happened is it would chip and kids would like gnaw. You know how kids are? They'll, they would gnaw on, on like a windowsill and they'd get lead chip. And it would lead to severe mental problems. And so lead is a big problem. And when it's in your water, it's a big problem because you have to have water. You have to drink water. You don't have life without water. And it was causing these big problems. And, and what they found out was there's some chemical difference between the river water and the lake water. And it was causing these old pipes that had been there for generations to start leaching lead out of them into the water supply. And so the kids were literally drinking poison. 
And they, start, and they start having huge health impacts and huge IQ issues and developmental issues, all because the water was no longer pure. And we cannot underestimate the importance of purity in things that matter. There are few battles equal to those that are waged in defense of the gospel. The gospel is the water of eternal life. Jesus said to the woman at the well, drink my water and you'll never thirst again. Drink my water and you'll live forever. But the water has to be pure because impure water will destroy you, it will kill you, it will make you sick. What we're reading today and what we read about as a theme throughout the book of Galatians is about the purity of the gospel, the purity of the water of life. And throughout the history of Christianity, there have been regular conflicts over the purity of the gospel because this is a battle we're fighting. You know, sometimes people will say this. Oh, you Christians, you're fighting all the time. Yeah, but when we fight, we fight over important stuff a lot of the time. And that is important. You know, and, and, and you look at the history of the church. I mean, in what we've read already, you know, the issue in Jerusalem, and now they've got the issue in Antioch, and the issue with the being addressed to the church of Galatia. This was important in those days, but it's been important since then. Even after the scripture was completed, the letters were all written, and, and God had closed the canon, there were still these controversies. So they had to have, they had to have these conferences, these councils, the, you know, this, when they gave us this, many of the creeds of the faith. Why? Because they needed to make sure the gospel was protected and that it was presented in its purity, that you didn't let the lead in, that you didn't let the impurities that would destroy and kill into the gospel. It had to be protected. And then later on, you know, after, after the council, of course, you had the Reformation. The Reformation, what was it about? What is required for salvation? Faith alone, your grace alone, the Word of God alone, the solas. Right? That was important. And it split the church. And it should have. It needed to. Because a polluted gospel is no gospel at all. You even continue up into the 1700s, 1800s, there, there were these different controversies. One of them was from Spurgeon. Spurgeon was called the Prince of Preachers. He was the pastor of the Metropolitan Baptist Church of, 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 uh, of London. He had an international fame, and he was one of the great orators to this day. I read anything I can by Spurgeon. He just was an amazing thinker, an amazing preacher. But during his, sermon, or during his lifetime, he was controversial. And one of the reasons he was controversial is because he got involved in something called the downgrade controversy. And the downgrade controversy is when Spurgeon decided to stand up and preach against those who were de-emphasizing elements of the gospel, who were adding things to the gospel. And he said, not on my watch, you won't. I will use my voice. I will use my influence. I will use my pen. And he started naming names. <laughs> and it made him very unpopular. And people were threatening him and trying to get him fired. And they quit inviting him places. And he said, you can do whatever you want to. I stand for the gospel. So it's called today in church history, the downgrade controversy. And it was significant. But it happened later on in the late 1800s, early 1900s. We had, we had a situation where the, the, the seminary started shifting under the influence of Darwinism. And Darwinism's precept, you say, well, it's survival of the fittest. It's more than that. The, 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 the fundamental precept of Darwinism is that you don't need a god. That there is no God, and if there is, he doesn't really matter. And he certainly wasn't part of creation. The way we think of creation is completely incorrect. And so this became a, an influence in science and in philosophy and in theology. And so the great historical seminaries, like those in Harvard and Princeton and Yale, places that would be by our standards today considered hyper-fundamentalist, started changing their theology to make it more universalist. And a great, and this is called modernism. Everyone wants to be modern. Everybody wants to be hip, right? But what happened is it conflicted with those who said the word of God is unchanging. It's always been true, always will be true. And this great conflict was between modernism and eventually postmodernism and what we know as fundamentalism. Don't think fundamentalism like the people that are blowing bombs, exploding bombs and everything. But this was, we are defending the fundamentals of the faith. Big controversy in the late 1900s, early 19, or 1800s, early 1920s. I mean, and we see other little ripples of it. In seven, uh, 1970s and 80s, I even remember this one. The Southern Baptist Convention, which was the largest Protestant denomination in the country, they had a big controversy on whether you could believe the Bible, whether it was true, or whether it's just part true, or whether it contained truth, or whether it was truth. And I mean, the big guys went to war over this, and people like Charles Stanley and... and um, 
Adrian Rogers and, and, and Jerry Vines and Albert Moeller and, 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 and guys like this who were taking this big stand and, and, and the denomination had shifted far away from the gospel and they brought it back. It's one of the most unusual things that's ever happened in a major denomination. Usually they split or fall apart or something like that. You can look at today in the United Methodists and many of the Presbyterian denominations that has happened. And the Southern Baptists, it didn't happen at that time. And one of the reasons was because they got up and they said, we will defend the purity of the gospel. It must be true. It must be protected. Well, we're not Southern Baptists. I cheer for that. I cheer for that. And today I want you to understand the gospel is under attack once again. That the word of God is not relevant. The word of God takes second place to social movements, to cultural Marxism, to all kinds of other things. You keep your faith over there. We live this way in the real world. And there has to be a generation like generations before us who stand up and say, no. We stand for the purity of the gospel, the purity of the word of God, the authority of scripture. These are important things. And this is what we're seeing in this passage. So I've kind of I've wanted to introduce that to you to make sure you understand where we're heading with this. Because whether on a personal level or on, you know, like when we come to our knowledge of Jesus Christ and we're in need of a savior, uh, we, we better believe the right thing. Or whether we're talking about a corporate level, when churches and church leadership and denominations and anywhere the gospel is public, publicly proclaimed, we must always be cognizant of and aware of and protective of the purity of the gospel. That's why you see water behind me. That's why when we talk about this, we've got the, the water. Because when you pollute the water, you are injecting lead in it. You're squirting mercury in it. You are making it deadly, and it loses its power when it loses its purity. And this is the whole message of Galatians and what was going on in Galatians. And so that's why we want to say it. So we just read the passage. Melly read it, and it was, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it just this chunk of Scripture. And, and what is God saying in it? There's a lot of things before it. I'll just touch on those as a review. There's a lot of things coming, and we're just in the introduction, folks. It's going to get good. I love this book. Man, I could just be in this book forever. It's, it's, it's got so much richness in it. But today, I want to take a look at this junk and help you understand the principle and why this study is so important and why it's important for us today. So let's look at the passage. Let's understand the context. This is the third act in a trilogy, all right? Think of the Star Wars, all right? This is the, 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 I don't know, is it the Empire Strikes Back? What's the third one? I don't even, I've never watched any of them. So anyway, but it's the third in the, in, in the first, all right? This is the story. I know some of you are like, you've never seen Star Wars. I really haven't. But, and Pastor Ben, by the way, thinks that I'm not going to heaven because I've not seen Star Wars. He's, he's got issues with that. But, but, but here, here, here's the deal. The first act, the first one, the original one, was Paul said, I need you to know my story. This is how I came to be an apostle. Because a lot of the enemies of the gospel were saying, hey, don't listen to Paul. You don't know what he's talking about. And Paul said, oh, yes, I do. Jesus himself taught me. And that's what we looked at in chapter 1. He said, this is my story. This is my song. This is why I'm preaching. This is why I gave up my old life. This is where I'm heading. And you better listen to me because the Holy Spirit himself was my discipler. And Jesus himself confronted me on the road to Damascus. And I've thrown that old guy overboard, and there's a new Paul, not Saul, but Paul, and I'm dead serious about this stuff. You need to listen to me, and I'm anointed and called and commissioned by the God of the universe. He didn't apologize for what he was teaching. And this was very essential, this was very important, because God had given Paul a big assignment, and it's reverberating even in this room today, how God used Paul. So that was the first one, and, and, and that's the personal conversion of Paul. Then last, or two weeks ago, we looked at something that went on in Jerusalem. And Pastor Ben taught that, and I'm not going to reteach it, but we call this the Jerusalem confrontation. It's when James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, who was the pastor of the church, said, yes, here's the gospel, and it's real clear. I mean, they, they literally had a meeting. They literally had this conference, and they said, just in case you're a little shaky on this, in case it seems a little confusing, we want you to understand this is a declaration. The gospel is by faith through grace, not of works. This is the gospel. And everybody heard it. Everybody signed on. Everybody agreed to it. This was the standard. Remember, these are the very early days of the church. It was just getting organized. 
It wasn't like anything like what we see it later on in Scripture, even later like, like it is today. There wasn't a church on every corner. There wasn't a church in every city. There wasn't a church in every continent. There, this, this was fledgling, and it was really important. One of the first things you do when you start a business is get your organizational documents in order, right? This is what's happening in Scripture. And we're getting to see it unfold. It's like reading about the Declaration of Independence. How it took them like 200 days to get it off. Not a declaration, but the Constitution. 200 days to get it there and get everybody. And so, and so on. Only what we got was coming from God himself. It was through the teachings of Christ. And we need to make sure everybody's on the same page. And this is what happened at Jerusalem. They said, this is it. All right? You know what it is. That was the Act 2. And that's what Pastor Ben looked at. Now we're in Act 3. And Act 3 is, of course there's going to be a confrontation. Of course, I mean, when they finished the, the, the Declaration of Independence, what happened? War broke out, <laughs> all right? You know? And, 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 and when this was finished, what happened? Almost. It wasn't quite a full-blown war, but a controversy and a confrontation had to occur. And that's what we just read. And we call it the Antioch Confrontation. So let's make sure we understand what we're talking about, okay? So first we had Paul's conversion. And he said, this is the gospel. This is what I experienced on a personal level. And then on a more corporate level, they said the Jerusalem... Uh, confirmation. This is what we believe. This is who we are. All you churches got it. Let's make sure we're teaching it on Sundays and all throughout the week as well. And then all of a sudden, somebody got a little off track, and now we've got the Antioch confrontation. Oh, but this is a big deal. And the reason it's a big deal is because the two titans of the church were Peter and Paul. They were the big guys. If you look at the book of Acts, the first 11 chapters, this is the story of Peter in the church and his establishment of the church and how God was using him to get the church going. But if you continue to read in the book of Acts after chapter 11 throughout the rest of it, it's the story of Paul. And Paul's the one who was going to go out and he was going to travel the world and he was the great missionary. And these two great pillars, now they're at each other. I love Peter and I love Paul, but they're so different. Peter's the everyman. Peter's the guy I, I can kind of relate to because I'm a Midwesterner, right? My dad was a union dad, guy. My grandpa was a union guy. I, I haven't been. I, you know, I'm the black sheep. I'm the white collar guy. But they were, they, you know, they worked with their hands. They were everyman. My dad didn't get saved until he was in his 20s. I relate to that. And some of you do. Some of you are from that background. And, and, and that's fine. But, you know, I, Peter's theme of life, Peter's philosophy of life was ready, fire, aim. <laughs> you know? That's just how he lived. He kind of lived off the cuff. You see him, you know, when he's walking with Jesus, he was a young kid. And he was impulsive. He was coarse. He was a fisherman. He went skinny fishing. Remember that when he's out there naked fishing? I mean, this is Peter. He's just off the rails. He's the one who's lopping off ears in the garden. He's, a, he, he's, he's the guy that, oh, I'll tell you what. Jesus, you're not washing my feet. That ain't happening. And Jesus said, well, if you're not washing your feet, you're really not part of me. He said, well, then wash me all over. I mean, he just was all over the place. I love that about him. He was the everyman. He was the raw deal. And, and then we've got Paul. Paul was buttoned up. He'd attended the university. He had his PhD. He knew people. He was plugged in. I mean, he was a boy wonder. He was not only a rabbi, he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was respected. In fact, whenever trouble came, who'd they go to? They went to Paul, only his name was Saul. And they said, Saul, what are we gonna do? And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I'll take care of it. There aren't gonna be any questions when I get done. He held Stephen's coat while they murdered him. He'd come into town and people would run. He was the man, he was the intellect. He was the guru, and then he got struck down on the road to Damascus, and he met Jesus, and he got humbled, and his world changed. But you don't change fundamentally who you are in terms of your reputation like that. And people didn't trust him, and they were concerned because he'd been on this pedestal. He was a member of the muckety-muck club. I mean, he was the guy, and now all of a sudden you're going to kind of convince us he wants to come and preach for us? Come on. I know Stephen's family. They watched him die in the street. And who was standing over there holding the coats of everybody who was doing it? Yeah, that guy. But he was respected and he was feared. Could not be more different from Peter. And what do we got? This going on. 
We just read about it. Now I'm going to explain a little bit more, but I want you to understand this was this is a big deal. So let's 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 take it apart and let's look at it. So I'm kind of going professorial on you, but it's good stuff. I love it. I hope I hope you love it by the time we're done. Okay. So we got two scenes going on here. We've got two big characters, right? They're having a smackdown. That's what that's what you call it, right? A throwdown. And you got these two guys that are coming at each other. And and here's what had occurred. And the first this is the first thing. We've got a relapse. Peter had a relapse. Peter was known for his relapses. Remember, he's the guy that cursed Jesus at the fire. He's, he's the guy that wasn't at the, you know, at the cross. He, there, there are all kinds of things going on with Peter. He just, he was this way. Now, some of us can relate to that. Some of you look at your Christian journey, you know, and it's like, mm-hmm, made steady progress, doing good, doing good, doing good. Some of you made a U-turn, and you went back, and boy, you've never looked back. And then you got Peter. Up and down and up and down and in. And you make up your mind, Peter. But God used Peter and he used his story. But Peter relapsed. And here's what was happening. So according to the passage we just read, everything settled down after Jerusalem. And Peter is hanging out with his Gentile buds. Now, remember this. Jews hated Gentiles for all those years. They were the sinners. They were the pagans. They were the dogs. They literally called them dogs. But now because they shared faith together, they're having dinner together. They're hanging out with each other. And while this is going on, Peter's just having a good old time, and he's loving his brothers, and they're high-fiving, and they're just having, they're just having good. But then this little group of troublemakers that started in Jerusalem that James had had to deal with decided to go on a field trip, and they came over to where Peter was, and Peter found out they were coming. They were the cool kids. They were the kids that, you know, they didn't always invite people like Peter to sit at the lunch table with them, all right? And they were traditionalists. And they were known as, and get this, this is, this, to me this really cracks me up. What political party are you? I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Libertarian. I'm a circumcision party guy. That's, that's what they were known as, all right? Now, why were they known as that? Because here's what was going on. They were known as the circumcision party because they kept the law. They said, oh, yeah, we love this Jesus guy. That's a great story. Yeah, man, what a relief or whatever. But you got to keep the law because we're Jews first. So, yeah, no lobster for you. Absolutely no bacon. You better keep the Shabbat, right? Nothing on Sundays. And, and by the way, all the guys got to get circumcised. So even if you're a Gentile and you come to know Christ, call your doctor in the morning, all right? God, or what do they call those, the guys in the, anyway, moil? Yeah, call your moil. <laughs> I am so not Jewish, but thank you. <laughs> so call your moil in the morning and have him come take care of business, all right? And then we'll accept you as a brother in Christ. Then you're a Christian. And when Paul, or I'm sorry, Peter knew these guys were coming, he's having dinner and he said, circumcision party's in town? Um, Gotta go, guys. Um, Taking off. Um, See you later. Um, And he withdrew from them. And they didn't invite him to lunch. I can't come. Uh, uh, I gotta do something. And he did not spend time with them anymore because he didn't want them to think badly of him. And he, by his very actions, was implying that they were right and that the Gentiles need to get circumcised and they need to keep the law and they needed to obey Shabbat and they need to do all these different things because he withdrew from them and said, oh, well, you know. And that was his relapse. Now, folks, we see this sometimes. It's the reality. When no one holds us accountable to truth, we're liable to stray and get in places we never dreamed we would get. Now stop and think about this. Peter, of all guys, knew about grace. He'd experienced it first place. Jesus had forgiven him. And what did Jesus do when he forgave him afterwards? He said, come over here and eat with me. I got fish. (laughs) You know, come over here. I'll talk to you. I'll spend some time with you. Peter had already experienced it. Peter was the guy who got the big, remember the big dream? It's one of my favorite stories in the Bible because it means I can eat bacon and lobster and shrimp. All right, but the he he said I you know I'm, I have to keep the law I have to keep the law I have to keep the law and the dietary laws and so forth and and the, he had a dream 
And, and God gave him a dream and said, hey, no, look, I don't understand. He pulls, pulls his big sheet down like a big old picnic. And he said, look at that, look at that. There's shrimp, there's lobster, there's bacon, there's ham. Help yourself, man. That's great to go. You're good to go. It's okay. You're under grace. The law wasn't supposed to save you and not eating shrimp didn't save you. It just showed you you couldn't keep all the rules you needed me to. So go ahead. You don't have to worry about the holidays. You don't have to worry about all the extra stuff. You don't have to worry about many steps you take. You don't have to worry about cooking on Sunday. All those things. You're free indeed. And that vision had been given to Peter himself. He saw it with his own eyes. But yet, in this moment of pressure, he buckled. Do you remember during the first Gulf War back in the 80s or 90s, if you're old enough to remember that? You remember there was a prime minister of, of uh, England. Her name was Margaret Thatcher. Oh, I loved that lady. She was, she was powerful. And, and she said what she meant and meant what she said. She was, she was amazing. And, and, uh, and George, w, I'm sorry, George Herbert Walker Bush, the first George Bush, he was kind of like, uh, you know, a thousand points of lights. And, you know, he was, he, he was kind of like kinder and gentler nation. And, and they're talking about, and they're getting ready to go to war against a bunch of Arabs. And this is going to be a big deal. It's going to be a big confrontation. And apparently sometime in the conversation, George Herbert Walker Bush kind of got, you know, a little, you, know, you sure this is the right thing to do? And here's what Margaret Thatcher said. History has recorded it. And I can just hear her in a British accent. She said, George, don't go wobbly. Don't go wobbly. <laughs> All right? <laughs> and, and, and Peter went wobbly. <laughs> he went wobbly. He said, I can't eat with you guys anymore. Got to go. <laughs> and he heads off. And Paul said, I can't deal with that. What we're doing is too important. So the first one is the relapse. Here's the second one, and it's the rebuke. The second part of this passage we just read is Paul saying, I'm not going to let this one go, Peter. Love you, bro. You need to get over here. We're going to have a talk. And it's got to be a loud one because everybody's watching. And this ain't about you and it ain't about me. Excuse my grammar. This is about the truth. And he says, what you've done is condemned you. Now, this condemnation that we're talking about here is not the condemnation that comes with you're condemned to hell. But it is this. Sometimes our actions don't match our words. And in doing so, our actions condemn us. We've spoken the truth, we know the truth, and yet we're doing something different. In fact, Paul said, y'all are a bunch of hypocrites. The word hypocrites comes from a hypocrites, and, and, and it, is, it is used when the Greeks would do uh, dramas, and they had two masks. You've seen the masks for dramas, and they have a smiley face and an and a unsmiley. Unsmiley, is that a word? Frowny. There we go. Frowny face. And if they were playing happy, they'd put this mask on, and if they were... But nobody knew what was really behind the mask. And that's where they get the, the hypocritical uh, aspect. And it's because of the mask. It's, it literally means wearing a mask. And he said, you're wearing a mask, Peter. You know better. Jesus taught you better. He worked with you. He gave you dreams. He taught you personally. He reconciled with you personally. What's this? What's this? It's confusing. We got to keep the gospel pure we got to make sure people understand. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That includes circumcision. Circumcision. That includes all the other things that your Judaizer friends. And the Judaizer was the official term that he would use for the party of circumcision. The guys that had one foot stuck in the law and the other foot wanting grace. But it was like they had this backup plan that ensured that they were right with God. But the problem was that backup plan, that backup plan was led in the water. It was polluting the purity of the gospel. And Paul said, I'm going to deal with it. So he rebuked him. And he's going to rebuke him very, very publicly. And it's going to unfold. And it's the whole theme of the rest of the book of Galatians and so forth. Now, let me pause here and let's talk about this. Because sometimes we, we use this term called legalism as it's referencing this. Now, you have to, a lot of words have more than one definition. We all know that, right? Okay? Like love has a lot of definitions. I love my mama, I love my dog, and I love pizza, and I love my country, and, you know, and, but I don't love them all the same way. I don't love my mama the way I love my wife, right? There's different definitions, different categories. Language isn't always that precise. Well, legalism is the same thing. So the legalism that we talk about, particularly as it relates to this passage, is the adding of works to grace for salvation. That's definition number one. That's the original. That's the historical one. 
And this is what the Judaizers were doing. This is what the party of circumcision, circumcision party was doing. They were adding works to grace and polluting the gospel. So when you put anything in with God's grace, you make the gospel not only polluted, but you make the death, burial, resurrection of Christ inconsequential. Because if you could get saved any other way, why would God himself allow himself to be murdered on the cross? It would have been unnecessary. But the law was never given to us so that we could attain salvation. The law was given to us so that we would know we needed salvation. And that salvation would only be secure for us when Christ came and died for us. And you say, well, what about the Old Testament? The Old Testament believed that as well. They just didn't see it in, in technicolor like the way we see it today. But they had the lamb. They shed its blood. They put the blood in certain places. They had their rituals. Why? Because it was pointing to when Jesus would die on the cross. It was a picture of what was to come. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And whether it was when God told Adam in the garden, remember, Cain and Abel? And what was the big confrontation between Cain and Abel? Cain polluted the sacrifice. He didn't use blood. You think God's serious? He's absolutely serious. You think the confrontation is big? Well, Cain got so mad he killed Abel. The confrontation may have been between Cain and Abel. It may have been between Peter and Paul, but let's make no mistake, it's between Satan and God. Because Satan wants to pollute the purity of the gospel. That's why it's important we stand courageously for the truth. So that's the first kind of legalism, okay? Now, the other kind of legalism is this. There are some, and I grew up in this, real thick in this, all right? There are some who say, well, you're not a good Christian if you don't go back to the law if you don't go back to separation, if you don't go back to some of these different things, and that you're worth to God, the amount of how God will bless you, how much whether or not God loves you or not. And that's a secondary issue. They don't believe that they would lose their salvation, but they believe that a sign of your salvation is the degree to which you separate yourself from worldliness. So I grew up in this culture. No, I didn't drink, didn't use tobacco, uh, didn't go to the movies, um, didn't, uh, didn't get to dance. I lived footloose, okay? Um, um, had to have my hair cut a certain way. My, my mother and my sisters were not allowed to wear slacks because you didn't wear that which pertains to a man. Um, any of you all grew up like that? Any of you remember that? Didn't play sports on Sunday? Remember that one? Um, unless it was at the church picnic, and we always played softball at the church picnic. It was kind of weird. Um, and that's the thing about, about that. We couldn't go to the movies, but you could rent them when they started, you know, the, the, the machines came out. And that's what kind of, like, alerted me to, like, mm, something isn't copacetic about this, you know? And so I started thinking, and I got, you know, I experienced grace and freedom for the first time in my life. But, and I don't resent the way I grew up. I love the way I grew up, and my parents were good and godly people, and they were sincere, but they were, on this issue, it's not biblical. But that doesn't have to do with salvation. So sometimes what we do is we use the term legalism and we use it in one application when it should be in the, we, we need to distinguish between the two. Legalism does not save you and legalism does not make you a good Christian. What makes you a good Christian is pursuing God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And by the way, when you pursue God with all your heart, soul, and mind, you won't do ungodly and worldly things. But you don't live by the list, you live by the Spirit. And the Spirit of God lives within you and that does impact you. There are still a lot of things I didn't do when I was younger that I don't do now. I just don't do them now because I'm trying to earn God's favor. I do them now because they're part of the Holy Spirit working within me. And I have temptations and weaknesses and vulnerabilities that you may not have, but I certainly have them, and I need to steer a real clear path around those. And so that requires you to know God, know His Word, and listen to the Holy Spirit. That's a real authentic Christian living, not living by a list of rules and regulations. So I want to kind of put that in there as kind of like a little side mini lesson on that, all right? So here we go. I'm almost finished. And yes, and I know I haven't gotten to my points yet, but they're, they're the end, okay? So you've got this big confrontation, Peter and Paul. Paul, the relapser, Peter, the, re or, 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 uh, Peter, the relapser, Paul, the rebuker. What do we learn? Okay, here are the principles. All right, here are the principles, and, and we'll get into this a little bit more, but we're just looking at the passage that we read this morning, all right? Number one, no one, no one is above question or free from the potential of sin, all right? Not Peter, not Paul, not Dan, not Ben, not the elders, 
and not you. And if we are then not above question, and we're never genuinely free from the potential of sin, who becomes our standard or what becomes our standard? And the standard is always the Word of God. The Word of God is found through the written Scripture and the person of Jesus Christ. He's the living Word. Scripture is the written Word. That is truth. That is the infallible, impeccable, unchanging, immutable line and standard which we follow. Not a denomination, not a headquarters, not a pope, bishop, pastor, or priest. In fact, the Bible teaches that we're all priests. It's called the priesthood of the believer. That's a doctrine. And the only, there's only one mediator between God and man. That is the man Christ Jesus. Why is that? Because you don't make your comparisons with a man. You make your comparisons with Christ. And Christ is our advocate. All throughout the New Testament, Paul emphasizes this. He's our advocate. You don't need to go talk to Dan. You don't need to go talk to Ben to get forgiveness of sins. You don't need to go talk to a priest. You don't need to go talk to a pope. You don't need to talk to any religious guru. The Holy Spirit lives within you. You say, well, what does the Bible say? It says, confess your sins one to another. Yes, that's for the purpose of accountability, but not for the forgiveness of sins. I can't forgive your sins. Jesus forgives your sins, and they've been forgiven since Calvary. All you got to do is claim the forgiveness. All right, so understanding that, none of us are above accountability. If Dan, if Ben, if Andy Stanley, if Stephen Furtick, say, Dan, you can't mention names. Yes, why? Because no one's above question. I don't care if they have 5 million followers on YouTube. I don't care if their church runs 50,000 on a Sunday. In fact, if your church running 50,000 on Sunday, I may have more questions for you. The gospel is pure. And we have to work for its purity. Now, by the way, some of those guys I mentioned, hopefully all of them know the gospel and will preach the gospel correctly. But if anybody at any time deviates from the gospel, they must be held accountable. And that included Peter. Peter, Acts 1 through 11. Peter, the one who would eventually be crucified upside down according to, 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 to histor historical tradition. Peter, who some, you know, Embraces the, 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 the rock of the church. Peter, yeah. Who is he accountable to? The truth. Not even to Paul. Paul just exposed it. But the truth was the scripture. The truth were the, was the teaching of Jesus. And so that is important. Number two, we must not simply believe the right thing or say the right thing, but we must behave the right way. All right? We must not just simply say the right thing or believe the right thing, but we got to behave the right way. Now, Peter is already on record. Peter was at Jerusalem. Peter signed the documents. Peter professed his faith in Christ. But his behavior with the Gentile believers said, you're not enough. You need to be circumcised. You need to keep the law. You need to add to your grace. And it's important that we not only watch what people say, but watch what people do. Now, my mom had a saying that she taught me for years. Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. That's what she said, all right? Your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. That's a long way of saying actions speak louder than words, right? We have to be held accountable for not just what we say, but what we do. Warren Wearsley put it this way, and he was the most eloquent of all. He said, your behavior is a reflection of your beliefs, plain and simple. And Paul said, Peter, you've said one thing, but your behavior is another. We're going to need to put those in alignment. This is a big deal. So we have to ask ourselves a question. In what ways does our behavior reflect what we say we believe in this room? Are we prone in the anonymity of the Christian community to give verbal affirmation to things that we deny with our actions during the week? when things are at stake like 
popularity, position, and paychecks. When you get called in by your DEI person and ask, where is your ribbon? When you get called in by HR as someone who is sitting in this room right this minute did and said, I understand that you prayed before lunch in front of your team and offered to pray for anybody who might have a burden and need a problem or whatever with them. You can't do that. And he said, I can't stop. And they said, then you're fired. And by the rest of the story is this, God blessed his courage and today he and his wife have a very successful business. But more important than that, he has a very biblical reputation. And if today he was living in a camper down by the river, he still did the right thing. He still did the right thing. You see, God never promised us that speaking the truth would always be widely embraced. God just said, speak the truth. Speak it in love, but speak the truth. And Peter fell short of that mark because his actions said, yeah, I speak the truth, I speak the truth, but I can't be with you people who are truth followers, who are free indeed. Brings me to the third thing. Truth is more important than the illusion of harmony or peace. Truth is more important than the illusion of harmony. Because here's, here's the thing. It's not real peace and it's not real harmony if you have to give up what is true in order to fit in. That's their version, not my version. And by the way, the idea that we can live peaceably in a fallen and broken world who is hell-bent, literally, and who worships at the feet of the lies of Satan, that we somehow can navigate our human journey without conflict, only known for peace, is ludicrous. It's ludicrous. And I would say if you do not have conflict with those who walk outside of truth, you got to be wearing a mask a lot. <laughs> Either that or you're drinking some poison water. <laughs> and again... I'm not suggesting we walk around like 40-pound rats going, here, giddy, 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 okay? I'm not suggesting that. We're not looking for fights. But if we are walking in truth, the truth speaks for itself, and the truth is always offensive. The Bible calls us to be salt and light. What happens if you put salt in an open wound? It stings. And what happens when, I had this happen in a hotel room one time. What happens when there's a bunch of roaches in a room and you turn on the light? <laughs> they scatter. I thought the bedspread was moving. It was not pleasant. No, I did not stay there. <laughs> light causes reaction. Well, you're calling people who are not believers roaches. No. What I'm saying is this. The truth offends. The truth offends. And the kindest thing we do is to speak the truth in love. Number four. Situational ethics are ungodly ethics. Situational ethics are ethics that change based on circumstances or hoped-for outcomes, but they're not founded in truth. So you say, well, why is that significant? Because God's word is our standard, not circumstances. The ends do not justify the means if the means are ungodly. Christians do not make truth might does not make truth. Popularity does not make truth. Christians need to speak the truth. Might does not make right. And the number of followers you have does not make you more credible if what you believe is a lie. We have to be attached to the objective truth of the word of God. There are no vacuums when it comes to things like philosophy and orthodoxy and ethics and morality and values and universal laws and objective truths. Not everybody gets to be right. Not everything is equal. And theological Marxism is only universalism. Universalism is the idea there are many paths to God. And that's a damnable lie. Because Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, the life, 
No man comes to the Father but by me. That's extremely narrow. So you may drive through New England, as I did a few years ago, and you see all of these signs. God loves everybody. We're all God's children. God loves, you know, God is tolerant. And you see, you know, rainbow flags and this flag and that flag and, and, and all these different things and so forth. And it may give you a warm feeling. It may make you feel tolerant. It may hit every virtue signaling need you have. But if it's a lie, it's still a lie. And it's unkind. And it's unbiblical to not challenge lies. Because people who believe lies like their truths go to hell. So, oh, you talked about hell. Yeah, I know in this culture it's not popular to talk about hell, but the Word of God does. I don't like to talk about hell. I don't like to talk about damnation. I don't like to talk about sin. But we have to. Why? Because the gospel has to be pure. And if we're not careful, Satan's lies leach into the purity of the water. And it becomes toxic. And it'll kill your children. The last thing is this. Doctrinal falsehoods should not be ignored regardless of the consequences for opposing them. And I believe that you and I are living in a generation, perhaps not me, but many of you and all of our children and grandchildren are living in a generation whereupon we're going to start having to pay the price for believing truth. It's here. It's here. I'm stunned at how quickly it has changed. It may mean <laughs> that the number of people going to church grows smaller, not larger. It may be that others will experience a loss of employment or a limit to how high up in an organization you go or whether or not you get invited to be a member of any party, including the circumcision party. You may be left out, but the best is yet to come, folks. This world is not our home. We're just a passing through. We must remember that God has called us to walk in truth. You and I will either be relapsers or rebukers, but we must stand. And we must stand in respect of truth. Let the truth move those moments of relapsing back to orthodoxy. That's what happened to Peter. The same Peter who couldn't, <laughs> he couldn't deal with so many things, including meeting with him, would eventually die for what he believed, would die. In the end, he worked it out. And that's us. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. And by the way, if I ever say something stupid and talk as much as I do and as fast as I do, I'm bound to do it. Love me enough. No, 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 no. Love truth enough to open the Word of God. To open the Word of God. And if somebody loves you enough to do the same to you, realize this. Everybody needs a Paul in their life. Everybody needs someone who will say, truth matters. Will you be a rebuker? Will you be a relapser? Maybe sometime over the course of a long life, you'll be both. But in the end, truth always matters. The purity of the gospel is worth even the occasional throwdown.